Welcome to The Yoga Room. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Munoz, a yoga therapist and researcher studying and applying the tools of yoga to help transform the lives of people living with arthritis and related conditions. In this podcast, we'll explore the application of yoga to daily life, what the research shows, what real people have experienced, and how to ensure that yoga in its many forms is safe, accessible, practical, and relevant. You'll hear from people living with arthritis, yoga experts, healthcare professionals, and scientists who work in this space. Whether you're a yoga professional, a person living with a chronic condition, or someone who cares for those who do, we hope you'll walk away from each episode with a useful nugget of information or insight. Perhaps even think of this episode as a little bit of self-care. Whether you're listening in the car, the shower, on a walk, or in bed during a flare, we hope our sharing nourishes you in some way. As we begin, take a long, deep breath and consider setting an intention to have an open mind, to be fully present, to discover something new, to trust that you're hearing exactly what will serve you today and beyond. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Welcome, welcome everyone to the yoga room. We are in for a treat today and um, I, I have a guest with me who I have known as a colleague and through social and email communication for years now and i'm really excited to be reading one of her one of her several books in our upcoming yoga for arthritis book club and for those of you who are members of yoga for arthritis the book club is free please join us it will be a wonderful experience i'm sure if you are listening to this, you know, any sort of duration from the time that it's been recorded, our book clubs stay in the membership. So no matter when you hear this, if you are a YFA member, you can go in and experience the book club on your own time. But if you're hearing this on time, we'd love for you to join us. And if you're not a member, you should join. It's amazing. There are so many benefits, including the book club, but also the Q&As with me and a whole library of content and, and great stuff. So check that out on our website at arthritis.yoga. All right. So Susan here shared just a few sentences with me, and she will have to elaborate extensively in our conversation, but I'll read to you what she shared, which is, I am the author of Yoga Mind, Journey Beyond the Physical, Cherries in Winter, My Family's Recipe for Hope in Hard Times, and other books. And I'm currently working on a graphic novel webcomic about my time as a music journalist in the 1980s. So clearly she has a colorful and diversified past and an ability to write about all different kinds of topics and experiences. So welcome so much to The Yoga Room. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is great to be here. Uh, this is very exciting to be seeing you and talking to you again. Thank you. Absolutely. So the book that we're going to be exploring together in the Yoga for Arthritis Book Club is a yoga book, and you have a history with yoga. So let's start there. How did you first get introduced to yoga, and what is yoga in your life today? 
Yes. Okay. Um, so that's, <laughs> that is a long story. So I'm going to try to condense it down a bit, which is that when I lived in New York City, I knew that there were yoga studios around, but I never really felt the need for it until I actually moved away from New York City to Miami Beach, Florida. This is about 1989. And it was, you know, as most moves are very stressful. I was in a new environment. I didn't know anybody. And I happened upon a, a yoga book in the bookstore that I went to. And I thought I should get into this. I've heard about it. I should really try this out. But there weren't that many yoga studios at that time in Miami Beach. So I was kind of on my own until I moved back a year later to New York City. And I was looking around for yoga studios. And I remembered this one on 13th Street, Integral Yoga Institute. And I knew that they were a very authentic, organic place with, you know, they took it very seriously. And it wasn't about the body. It was very apparent from the moment you went in there and saw they were diverse before there was diversity. You know, there were older people in there, younger people, people in all different kinds of physical condition. And I thought, this is the place for me. I want this. I don't want an athletic place. I want a place where there's a spiritual component first, and then there's everything else. So I really learned about true yoga there. I was very happy being a student for a while. I was also going to different yoga studios. And one day I went to a studio with a, new, a very new teacher. And, you know, there was a spiritual element to it, but also she was putting people in headstand way before they should have been. And I thought, wow, that's, um, that's, that's risky. And as I watched people falling out of headstand and, and I kind of got this sense, you know, that you get a sort of a message from outside sometimes, not to be woo-woo about it, but, you know, I think people will understand. And the, the sort of message was a question, you know, if you think you can do better, why don't you take teacher training and see? And it's like, oh my goodness, it's a challenge from the universe. So I looked around, yoga teacher training, very expensive, um, even back then, but Integrals was affordable. It was very comprehensive. Uh, there was an interview process, you know, why do you want to teach yoga? And I, I answered, honestly, I don't know. Uh, and they were like, okay, we can work with that. <laughs> Thank you for your humility. <laughs> and, and I began uh, the training process. And I think what appealed to me most during that first training and my many subsequent trainings was the Raja aspect of yoga, that there was a philosophy. This was not a form of exercise as so many, many <laughs> Western outlets would have us believe. And yes, I'm very into the physical aspect of it. I think it's very valuable. I mean, certainly yoga for arthritis is uh, an incredible help to people as is, uh, you know, adaptive yoga and all of that, accessible yoga. But the spiritual aspect was really so appealing for reasons that I would then find out later, which I wrote about in the book, and I'll let you ask about that. But that's, that's my history with yoga, many, many happy years. And I'll describe my practice today later, because there's a bit of an evolution there. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. 
and we share, you know, being a part of that that integral yoga family, and especially that the community in New York is just a really lovely group of people, and it 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 definitely has a feel to it, even when you walk into that building from the way that everyone shows up with love. So I can appreciate that that preference. So you're talking about, I mean, it's something that you said I found was interesting that you do appreciate the physical practice and use it yourself and have an ev experience and evolution with it. And it's the philosophy that is perhaps most resonant with you. And for me, yoga for arthritis is primarily about the philosophy, the physical practice. And everyone thinks when they hear yoga for arthritis that it is about the physical practice, the physical postures, and that the way that yoga helps people with arthritis is through the physical practice because clearly arthritis is a physical problem, yoga is a physical solution, done. And that is not true on either end because arthritis is not limited to the physical experience, nor is yoga. And when I wrote my book, what everyone wanted me to write was a book of poses and adaptations for those poses. And that was not at all the book I was interested in writing. So my book has poses and adaptations in it. They're like in the appendix. <laughs> it's a whole person practice. There is nothing we experience that is limited to the physical body, even if that's where it manifests or that's where it's most apparent. Or even if that's where it starts, that's not where it ends. You know, nothing that affects your knee doesn't affect your personhood. Exactly. And in my experience with working with all of these many people who have various different types of arthritis and in different stages of their lives, it is the way that mindset shifts, the way that coping changes, the way that the disease is reframed and given new meaning that is the most profound change. It, it certainly is life-changing to be able to sit on the floor for the first time in 20 years. I do not discount that at all. And also to change what your body means to you in your experience as a human, I think is more profound than being able to sit on the floor for the first time in 20 years. Uh, so I don't know if that relates to your personal journey at all. Oh, entirely, entirely. I mean, on in, in two ways. One, you know, the reason that I ended up writing Yoga Mind Journey Beyond the Physical <laughs> yeah. was because upon graduating from teacher training, basic level hafa, uh, you know, with these, you know, a, a very idealistic view of I'm going to save the world with yoga. <laughs> right. Uh, a very close friend of mine had uh, an accident of diving into a pool and breaking his neck. Oof. There were a number of reasons for this. Um, the ladder had been installed in the shallow end for some reason, leading him to believe that that was the deep end. The lighting was poor. And he didn't see the markers. And at any rate, there he was. Um, 
first problem was danger of drowning, and he somehow survived that. He was uh, rescued by friends he was with. And, and frankly, he could have died several times on the, uh, he had to be medevaced out of the area, taken to a hospital. All of that movement, as anybody can imagine, with broken vertebrae uh, is severing nerves at every every slight movement. So uh, he managed to survive drowning, the medevac, and the operation to stabilize his neck. But when he woke up, he was being told, you're not going to move anything below your shoulders ever again. So this turned out not to be true. But when I heard about this, I was absolutely just crestfallen at, you know, first of all, there's the idea of losing a, a close friend. He was only 23 at the time this happened. So, you know, that was absolutely shocking. But when I was able to eventually see him, I thought, wow, I've just been trained in yoga, which I still thought of as asana. You know, I still am thinking of, you know, I know there's a spiritual aspect of it. I'm, I kind of heard a little bit about the philosophy aspect of it. But, you know, for me, mostly it's like, get into that downward dog and you're going to feel better. And here's a person who can't move. And I want to help him because I have this attitude of service that is a big part of integral yoga. But I can't. So I just kept going and I sort of kept thinking there's got to be a way. And uh, he was off the ventilator at one point and uh, breathing on his own. And I, you know, I said, hey, you know, do you want to try some yoga tonight? He was like, yes. <laughs> Thinking like, what can I possibly do? And so we did Dirga Swasam three-part breath. And he was thrilled because here was at last something in his control. Everything, every part of his life was no longer in control. He could not move about. He could not feed himself. He was not even able to breathe for a while. And there is a section in the book, because I know not everybody gets off the ventilator. There is absolutely a section in the book that addresses people who need breathing apparatus. That happens. And I did not want to leave anybody out. But um, at the time, I was really focused on, wow, okay, here's something he can do. And he said, this is really helping me keep calm because I am, this is a seismic change in my life and the medical procedures, I have no dignity left. I have, you know, this is a traumatic experience after a traumatic experience. And so he was doing his three-part breath all through these invasive medical procedures, beginning of the day, end of the day, I mean, throughout. And uh, we incorporated meditation. We made that breathing practice into a meditation. And I just started meeting with him every week for a year. It turned out to be a little over a year that we met every week, did our breathing together, you know, gossiped about celebrities because that was kind of a, a, a little bit of normalcy. That's what we used to do when we worked together. I don't encourage gossip, but you know, like levity is important. <laughs> Because everybody was coming in, and I think this is uh, very, very important for people working with uh, those who are dealing with illness, uh, various conditions and everything. People were coming in with these long faces and saying, Francesco, how are you? Are you okay? I mean, that's a stupid question, because how could you be? And really, they had no experience in dealing with people who were ill or suffering, or in pain, or anything like that, and it made him very depressed, and he had a 
wonderful superpower of turning things around and saying, oh, no, everything's okay. How are you? And so he'd ask people how they were doing and they'd start talking about, well, you know, work is crazy and this and that. But then they would reverse again and say, oh, but wait, who am I to complain? After all, look at you. And he one day said to me, boy, this is just what I always wanted to be. Everybody's worst case scenario. And I said, well, you're not my worst case scenario and I've got boyfriend problems. So I'm going to, you know, I need you to I need to talk to you about that. And he's like, what's that character doing now? So, you know, at the time, pre-husband, I had a problematic relationship. Anyway, I, I was normal around him. And I didn't act as though he was the worst case scenario. I just treated him like a person. And I think it's really uh, a wonderful gift that we give people when we're working with them and they're going through some stuff to just be normal and say, how are you doing? How do you feel? And when they answer, to not be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, to give the face. <laughs> now, now, you hinted at your own practice changing. And I think mm -hmm. you were talking about your relationship to the physical practice. Yes, that's correct. So that's correct. what has happened in your life and how has that affected your physical practice? Right. So I started doing yoga when I, I think I was about 29 or 30, and I'm now 60. So as you can imagine, your body changes over a couple of years. And um, I always thought, and I think other people think this too, that I was going to be like that 85-year-old yoga teacher in Australia who's doing side angle crow. <laughs> and like other yogis, Vanda Scaravelli, who was, you know, despite her osteoporosis, rather limber, sitting in lotus pose and everything with her hands behind your, you know, I thought I was going to be that person and I'm not. And it's been a big awakening for me, very enlightening to feel how my body has changed. So I want to say in the past uh, 10 years, because everything was really cool up until my 50s. And then I noticed that things were changing. And uh, enter the pandemic more recently, where we were unable to go outside. And yes, I did practice yoga, but being unable to do your activities of daily living, uh, really, I think affected a lot of people physically, uh, certainly mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all of the things. And I noticed a stiffness encroaching. So also with age, you know, through no fault of my own has come, I have arthritis in my right hip. I have tendonitis in my right hip. I have some knee problems that I had when I was younger anyway. And, you know, these are not uh, being at fault. <laughs> it just happens. <laughs> I was stunned though, because I, I did, I will fully admit that I succumbed to the myth of if I do yoga, I'm golden for the rest of my life. <laughs> so yeah. I remembered, you know, thankfully being at Integral Yoga, having witnessed uh, many elders. I had many elders as students, and they taught me a lot more than I ever taught them about modification, yeah. about working where your body is today. They would say to me, I'm not doing that pose because, and then they would tell me, and they wouldn't try to push it. They yeah. went as far as they wanted to go on that day. And so I have kept that with me as I 
feel achy sometimes when I wake up and I ease into my practice. You know, sometimes I don't call it yoga anymore. I just call it morning stretch. And that means <laughs> that I don't have to do all the poses. Right, right. I'm really, I think uh, the older I get, the more attuned to my body I'm becoming I'm really listening now that's what makes it yoga right it's not that you are in a certain position with your body whatever physical movement you're doing you're you're integrating breath you're doing it with awareness you're practicing mindfully you're hopefully operating from a foundation of the basic philosophical tenets of being honest with yourself, not harming yourself, et cetera. And so to me, that's yoga. It's not about, you know, that you're at a certain angle with that hip of yours, right? I agree 100%. And that angle is out the window right now. <laughs> in yoga mind, I share a story I never forgot. And I can see her so clearly today that part of teacher training was taking, you know, uh, other classes, including gentle yoga. And so in the gentle yoga class where I was not only an observer, but a participant and, you know, you, you know, you're young, you're in training, you go through a little period of being like, yeah, you know, I got to go through gentle yoga. This is going to be almost boring, but I'll go. Well, it was anything but boring. And it was in fact, probably my favorite class because all different types of people, all different abilities, including one elder who was brought in in a wheelchair very lovingly put on the floor by her aide who stayed with her during the entire time. And I came to see that this woman only had movement in her right arm. That was it. And yet she was uh, propped up by the teacher and the aide, you know, in very similar way that you have shown us how to prop people up. And she moved her arm, the one part of her body that she could move in the most graceful, mindful way. She was totally with that movement, mind, body as one. And she had this smile on her face. The woman was glowing. And I thought, boy, I want that. You know, I want to be. I did not look at her and think, oh, poor woman. She can't even do the poses. She did every pose yeah. by moving her arm. And that's what she did. And likely visualizing and right, yes. like she was embodying the pose in ways that were different from how someone might who had full. Yes, full expression of movement. Right, no, right. I mean, uh, with Francesco as well. I mean, he, yeah, in a different way, because he to me became the embodiment through his outlook on life, not a student of yoga, by the way, had never taken a yoga class, mm -hmm. knew nothing about yoga philosophy, any of it. Um, he was a runner pre-accident. I'm but surprised that when you first suggested to him, you know, when he's like laying in the hospital bed with no function from the shoulders down and you said, do you want to do some yoga that he didn't respond and say, what do you like? I can't, but because most people think yoga is movement. And so yes. I'm surprised that he said, yeah, let's do it instead of, are you crazy? Well, that's, that's exactly what I mean is that he to me, uh, embodied the uh, yoga philosophy, right. which is one of open-mindedness, curiosity, and uh, meeting the moment, you know, not having a preconceived idea of the way things should be, which, you know, Raja Yoga shares with Buddhism, 
a very reality-based outlook on life. And yes, I'll never know why he said yes, other than that it was something that was not dour. It was a possibility. Right, right. And yeah. I think, yeah. I think, you know, like that was the beginning of his teachings to me. Mm. You know, I was not teaching him anything other than, hey, you do the three-part breath this way. He's like, wow, that's amazing. And it could have <laughs> stopped right there, except right. he was, as I say, the way he moved through life, you know, uh, and he was moving through life, moving through trauma, moving through this injury, moving through a massive adjustment in his life, because uh, he was not getting out of that wheelchair. You know, that that was it. You know, right. once nerves are severed, they're they're just severed. But uh, he was teaching me, he was the living uh, Raja Yoga textbook, if you will. And I thought, boy, I have to write this down. <laughs> so, right. Okay. So you had that experience and then were, you were already an author at that point. Yes, I had Before you wrote, okay. So how did, how did Yoga Mind in particular come about? Just through that, uh, oh, well, yes, that because because uh, the uh, events with Francesco happened before I became an author. So, right. Yeah, you know, becoming an author is an interesting process, especially these days. It used to be a lot easier, and I'm sure you can attest <laughs> to that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> well, let me tell I'm, you. I'm on <laughs> my, I, I just finished my second. Right. Susan, and, and I have two more like in the pipeline and oh nice nice I mean I, the landscape has definitely changed but I it's don't know changed. that it was super easy in the good old days either um not right there were no, I mean now they're published right right well there are more avenues yes there are right? a lot more, and but thank some of them are more closed <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. some are very very close back in the days when they were open though I had done um I had done a couple of books that are called work for hire, meaning that you are being contracted to uh, carry out an assignment, if you will. Mm -hmm. So Chronicle Books asked me because I have a comic book background and, you know, we'll get back to that later. Yeah. But I, I have a comic book background and uh, Chronicle Books through a friend who worked at DC Comics asked me to write a book about Catwoman. And oh. they wanted it to be like a fun using the vintage images type of not a deep, you know, like feminist look at Catwoman, like <laughs> what it, where's her place in the world? No, right. they wanted it to be an adorable gift book, you know, right, like right. a fun thing. And so I found this very easy because I have no idea about Catwoman's feminist place in the world or anything <laughs> like that. I'm not that kind of person. Um, so I did that. I did a book on Wonder Woman. So I had some experience. I, I also um, wrote three uh, young adult novels based on the TV series Smallville, which was um, young Clark Kent right uh, before he became Superman. And I was a big fan of the show. And so that was they came very easily to me. So I had some book experience. But in 2008, I had been working at the Oprah magazine at the time. Oh, the Oprah magazine. And um, then, you know, everything fell apart. That was the economic crisis. And many of the staff were laid off. So, and I was one of the more recent hires. So I was laid off and put on contract, which was fine. Um, not fine, but, you know, it was what it was. <laughs> it was devastating, actually, but it's fine. Um, and as nobody was really particularly hiring and, um, 
you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of freelance going around. I thought, well, I've had this idea for a book for a long time. I finally have time to do it. And that was Cherries in Winter, my family's recipe for hope and hard times, which was about me making my grandmother's recipes from the Depression era with my mother and hearing the family stories. The idea being that everybody, everybody has stories of hardship if they just look back far enough and that we could get through this difficult time simply by looking at the strength and resilience of former you know, like previous uh, family members. So yes, I did have uh, experience being an author. And after I wrote Cherries in Winter, I wrote, you know, I needed a palate cleanser because it was kind of a heavy book. And um, it was helping people a lot, but it was really, I, I mean, I cried every day. And uh, because this family stories were really rough, and so I did a, you know, kind of a fun romancy novel kind of thing called Beach Glass, which was for a much smaller publisher. They were very, very kind. I love independent publishers. They're lovely. I love big publishers too, but they're a little preoccupied with other things right now, like how to, you know, sell books and stay vital. So independent publisher, really great. And oddly, that had a yoga aspect to it as well. And... um but I kept thinking about this idea of Francesco, like really bringing the Raja Yoga principles to life for me in a way that was relevant now. Even though I wrote it a few years ago, it's still, I get emails from people saying, wow, this book is so relevant to now. And they're very surprised to hear that I wrote it in 2016. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and you wrote this not as a general, here are the ideas of Raja Yoga and here's how you might think about them, but it's a 30-day journey in particular. So why that approach? I will be completely honest with you and say that that was the publisher's idea. <laughs> and in fact, I was told by my agent that unless I did a 30 day type of thing, mm -hmm. which I was very against because I was like, this mm. is a process. This is like a lifelong thing. Yeah. You can study this for the rest of your life. And they said, we, that will not sell a book. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> yes, study this for the rest of your life. There is another yoga book that was uh, something about a year, a year of whatever. And I thought, oh, right, boy, right. that sounds like a long time. And that was me <laughs> saying that. And I'm used to right. things like being a lifetime of study. So when right. they said, um, it's, uh, you know, can you please do it as a 30 day process? And initially I said, no, I don't think I can. And uh, they said, well, then we can't publish it. And I said, you oh, know, wow. 30 days is awesome. I love it. Well, Let's you know, it. there is, <laughs> I think there's something to it, even though like, certainly it's a lifelong practice. I mean, you could say the physical practice is a lifelong practice. Also, that doesn't mean 30 days can't be meaningful, useful, transformative, and a beginning, you know, and if someone can commit to, if 30 days is like a digestible amount, and if you can commit to really thinking, feeling, embodying this for 30 days, it probably is going to change you in some ways that are eternal. Absolutely. And then it's always there. 
what you have gleaned is always there to build on. Yes. But I, I I think it's a lovely idea because I wasn't against it when I saw yeah. the way it was unfolding. I mm. thought and I did these in a very specific order, you know, if yeah. uh, people who've read it, I really started with the simplest, most graspable concepts yes. and worked my way up to the more wow, developing my own idea of a faith path. Wow. Okay. <laughs> right, right. That's a little mind blowing. <laughs> But also, you know, the idea that you're not doing one and it's done, yes. but you are practicing them all, you know, first you get one, then you right, get right. two. So you're it doing Dirgaswasam every day while you are practicing making your own mantra, while you are doing, you know, brahmacharya, conserving your energy, while you are doing experiencing santosha. You know, uh, so they were. Or you're you're trying anyway. I mean, it's a practice, right? It's a Which practice, means... but it's one of those things where, I mean, you could do one of these uh, simply by noticing something. Many of them were just a, a simple being aware of, hey, right. what is my internal dialogue right now? Am I practicing ahimsa? And that, right, being aware of the times that we are not practicing as much. I mean, even something as simple as, wow, my breath is shallow right now. I mean, the first step to breathing differently is to notice that you're exactly. breathing. In a... So yeah, just yeah. cultivating an awareness. And I agree with you 100% that 30 days is a wonderful doable concept of like you know something in a month i could have more inner peace i could have a greater connection with myself and my environment uh people around me i could be more mindful i could be you know it, it's it's once i started putting it into the 30-day idea I saw how this was, oh, it's not only doable, this is actually a good idea because it just sets people up for a path. And now you practice that path for the rest and of it, your life. And it makes it directly actionable instead of, you know, many times people will read a book and then they have some information, some ideas that don't actually end up being translated into daily life, which is really what you hope for here. Yes. That is exactly what I hoped for. And you're right. A lot of times, you know, uh, when when doing the exercises, because I didn't want to. And by the way, there were a lot of publishers, just as your experience, who were like, oh, a book about yoga. Where are the exercises? And I was like, <laughs> right. well, they're, they're right in each chapter. And they're like, no, there's a bunch of spiritual instructions here. <laughs> And I said, yes, that's, those are the exercises. Right, where are the pretty pictures? <laughs> where are the pictures of you doing yoga? Yeah, and yeah, I was right. like, no, that's not happening. And as a matter of fact, I didn't even want to put any asana in here because I was thinking about Francesco mm. and people like him. Right. I thought, you know, there's a whole bunch of people out there who can't physically move, but who have minds that want yeah to be, right you know calmer happier whatever and they said no please you have to put asana in there and I'm like, all right i'm gonna put some yeah you know and for those who are not privy to this whole process you like enter into a relationship with your publisher that is like any marriage there is ongoing negotiation and Every you can step of the way. you can ask for certain like you can advocate as the author for things that are very important to you 
you know, having integrity and principle, et cetera. And then there are other things that you just have to say, you know what, that's not that big of a deal. And if it really matters to you, the publisher, who knows something about how to sell books, then I'm willing, I'm willing to meet you there. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the people who publish this book, it started out as North Star Way imprint, which is, uh, you know, an imprint of Simon and Schuster. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had been hearing from other publishers, that, you know, just don't understand this. I'm not sure what this is all about. I don't understand why there isn't more yoga in this yoga book. And I was like, God, this is the yogaist of yoga books, you know, but they didn't understand it. Then I got this call, you know, my agent said, I need you to talk to these people at North Star Way. And when I spoke with them, some of them were in tears, literally crying because the wow. book meant so much to them. Oh my gosh. Because one of them had a mother who was ill mm -hmm. and she was like, this is putting my mind at ease. Another one, uh, depression. Another one, it, it just, they got it. They really understood like, and they also wanted other people to actually get it, you know, physically get the book. So the things, you know, as you say, for people who are not privy to this process, you don't get to choose the title of your book. You don't get to choose the cover of your book. And sometimes you don't get to choose the contents of your book. <laughs> you know? However, I must say that, uh, you know, yoga has taught me a lot about humility, you know, which being humble and deferring to people who are actually in the business. You know, it's kind of like when uh, students would come up to me and say, I have this pain in my lower back. And I would say, have you seen a doctor? Because I am not a doctor. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing where I would say to myself, well, I'm not sure about that cover, but they know what they're doing, I right. hope. And right. ever since then, all I've heard is, oh, that pretty cover. That cover's amazing. <laughs> I love that cover. Okay. That's great. So I I want to diverge a little bit. Still on the topic of, of book writing, my understanding, which is shocking to me, is that the number of people who actually read books, and maybe this is specific to America, but I think it's probably true elsewhere in the world, is a tiny, tiny fraction of the human population. Very few people actually read books, let alone like buy them, you know, and well, actually very few people buy them, let alone actually read them, right? I guess it should go the <laughs> other order because there are people who buy them and then don't read them. I have um, a stack of books that I <laughs> we, intend we all, to read someday. Right, right, right exactly. <laughs> so, and especially in this world where there is a, so much digital content available, B, in like short form and seemingly getting shorter and shorter. Our attention spans are shorter. And we were speaking briefly before the recording about the tragedy of current events. And that's an example of just how our culture is so soundbite oriented. Oftentimes, lacking a whole bunch of important nuance and context and history and perspective. And so in that reality that we're living in now, what is the place for books? Like whole books that you have to like sit and actually make time for and pay attention to 
and digest and hopefully apply? Yes, this is a great, great question. And thank you for bringing it up. I had read somewhere recently, and I wish I could remember where, that there was, uh, you know, this question of attention span, that because of uh, the way we engage with media now, which is mostly, you know, there's a lot of social media. If you look at movies now, the cuts, you know, like no scene lasts longer than three to five seconds. And some of that is to create tension. You know, it's very exciting. But others is because, you know, TikTok, you know, <laughs> I mean, everything is really fast. And uh, this person who had something to do with books was saying, God, you know, sitting down and reading a whole paragraph is just crazy. And, <laughs> and it's not crazy because I think the other side of anything that is um, large in our consciousness as social media is, as visual media is, we've become a very visually based society, which is part of what led me back to, uh, you know, comic books and, and graphics and things like that is um, there's this other side of it, which is, you know what, that's exhausting. <laughs> it's really yes. exhausting. And right. I want to hold a physical book, you know, physical books are their, uh, their composition of pulp as it degrades, emits a wonderful scent of vanilla. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that does not happen when you read an ebook. You do not get <laughs> right. a Which wonderful people can of read your book on ebook, though. And right? I highly yeah. encourage them to do so <laughs> if, if that is your media choose. of choice. <laughs> right, yes. right. Yes. Um, and I'm happy to say that it is still available. In, in but it's e also a break, you know, to your point, like, you know, this bombardment of yes. short form of visual content is exhausting and it feels like a luxury to be able to walk away from a screen and sit down with a book and spend yes. even if it's a few minutes i mean to me it is like i mean my when i was growing up it was like okay go read you know like it now it feels like such a luxury um i also was a nerdy kid who kind of always had a book with me same but same. I am not a visual person, and I know that's atypical percentage-wise, but I understand things in language, not in pictures. And so everything being, like for example, if there's an article and you can watch the video or listen to the audio or read the text, I'm going to read the text. And that is not typical. So it it is like a necessary rest for my brain to be able to sit down with some text. And I find it easier to make sense of content that way. My experience is that people who are visually oriented are finding it more and more difficult to engage with text because they just have less practice with it, less need for it, less patience even yes, with it. That's true. Um, well, I mean, to answer your first question, I think there's always going to be a place for books because physical books, ebooks, however books are digested, I, there's going to be a place for them because there are people who love to read. And there's also information that is not available in any other way. So, for example, um, you know, the conventional wisdom would be 
uh, once I had written Yoga Mind, which, as I say, was back in 2016. It was published in 2018. And conventional wisdom would say, okay, now launch a podcast. Now go on YouTube. Now do social media. Now do this. And I was like, no, <laughs> because I'm, I would rather people just take it in in the way that I speak the language of, you know, I, I speak the language of text. You know, however, I also know, and you know this very intimately, that people learn things in different ways. When I went for physical therapy the first time, they said, please tell us how best you learn. Do you learn best by reading? Do you learn best by wow. uh, listening to uh, verbal instruction? Do you learn best by being shown demonstration? Huh. Yeah. Uh, or do you learn best by all of the above? And I thought, wow, this was my first experience with the fact that there are different modes of learning, mm -hmm. intake. Uh, you know, there are people who absolutely don't read, but it doesn't mean that they're not educated and intelligent and informed. They're just consuming in different ways. So I think a big part of yoga for me is awareness, you know, not just awareness, you know, listen to your body and all that kind of stuff, but it's being aware of how much input we're getting today, you know, just to bring it into uh, modern times. Uh, my, my stepfather loves listening to the news. I have no idea why, because the news is just full of not great stuff today as, as it has been for, you know, the past bunch of years. My mom, on the other hand, would prefer silence and she's a reader. She can go through a book a week. You know, she's keeping the murder mystery industry, uh, completely, <laughs> uh, you know, afloat. Afloat, right. Yeah. Um, but, uh. There are, it's, it's, it's all about awareness. For example, people are constantly surprised when I talk about a 60 minute segment called brain hacking, where a whistleblower revealed that social media uh, engineers uh, work with neuroscientists to figure out where are the addictive parts of the brain oh, yeah, and how do we tap into that? Now, this is a nefarious practice. This is not right. This is engineers designing social media to plug into the addictive centers of our brain. Right. And make well, lots of companies have Instagram. been doing that for, for a very long time. Oh, advertising has made an <laughs> right, art of right. it. But, yeah. you know, uh, I think that this is something and that. And products that dig oh, into sure. our addict, right? Like, yeah, That's... but there's a big difference between, you know, uh, treating yourself to cookies, you know, and then you find you're treating yourself to cookies every day. You're having an experience of like eating something. This is something that people look at and think it's harmless. It reminds me of well, when, right. I was, when I was working in the magazine industry, uh, particularly in the 80s, there was something called airbrushing, which was <laughs> yeah. pre-Photoshop. Uh, <laughs> Right, right. And so we, you know, they, they would take a picture of a model and they'd say, oh, she has, you know, a little a little imperfection over here. Let's brush that out. But the readers of magazines thought that people actually looked that way. They knew nothing about airbrushing. They knew nothing about uh, Photoshop. They thought this was real. And so, you know, when I uh, when I talk about social media and how people are engineering uh, social media apps 
to be in the addictive part of the brain to stimulate that addictive part, they're shocked. What? Right. And I mean, like any, as you're saying, like with the cookies, us understanding what it is that we're exposing ourselves to is an important part of being discerning with it. When my kids were young, I taught them that commercials trick your brain so that when the, because the commercials especially target youth. And so they learn to understand like, oh, they're doing that thing. They're making me want this thing that yes. probably isn't that great because they know how to trick my brain. Yes, Which, exactly. Um, so when you were writing Yoga Mai, Raja Yoga is, it's deep complex it's so ancient <laughs> with did you feel any sort of why am i doing reticence this? Who am about, I? Like, oh my gosh <laughs> how am i gonna tackle this top well yeah so maybe some of that like the imposter syndrome part of it oh my goodness all have, but also just the the monumental task of taking this gargantuan stuff and make distilling it for essentially for beginners right um, I, I didn't actually approach it that way. Uh, I, I never would have in a million years set out to write a book about Raja Yoga because who the heck am I? I mean, there are swamis, actual swamis at Integral Yoga who have since the 1970s been living, teaching, learning, and meditating about Raja Yoga. And they say that they're beginners. So who the heck was I? And I never would have, never would have occurred to me. What happened was uh, I had this profound experience with Francesco where he taught me the true meaning of yoga. You know, I thought I knew, I've been through training, I, you know, went through subsequent trainings and I thought I knew what yoga was about, ha ha. And I had this experience with him and I thought, wow, this is what they were talking about. So I went to my teachers and the swamis and I said, you know, I had this experience with this person and they were like, wow, that's amazing. That would really help people. And I thought it could, yes, that's very true. And then it became, instead of who am I to do this, it became who am I not to do this? Because they said, mm. why are you holding this back? And I said, well, you know, I mean, I don't know anything about yoga. <laughs> No, but you know about writing. Yeah. You know how to write a story. So write the story and tell it from there. And that's why I always, always in this book say two things. One, when there's a good quote, when there's a good teaching, it came from one of my teachers and it's attributed. It's like Swami Ramananda said, Kali said, Rashmi said, Swami Ashokananda said, Chandra said, all of our friends, you know, it's attributed. And the other thing is that I constantly said, I am not a teacher. I Well, I mean, technically I'm a teacher. Yes, I have a certificate, but I'm not your teacher. I am a student. I'm doing this with you. I have been asked many times over the years, please run the Yoga Mind program online. And I'm like, that gets into teacher territory. And this was meant to be a shared experience, not me. That's like, so interesting. Her serene highness yeah. thing children listen to me no no <laughs> go listen which i to love i love that we're doing this as book club because i am gonna be on this journey with the yoga for arthritis community as we navigate it together and yeah. then we have the fortunate gift of you 
joining us at the end of this process so that we can, you know, the last book club they did was with my last book. And so they got to ask me, the author, questions anytime they wanted. And so they won't have that this time, but we'll store them up. So at the end, we'll get an opportunity to ask you whatever has come up during that it's 30 days that, that we move through it. It's better <laughs> that they don't ask me as they go along because this is a process of self-discovery. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, yoga is a very, very personal path. It's a universal path. It, it can be used by anyone. I mean, I remember in one of my trainings, there was uh, a woman of a Hasidic faith. And um, she said that some of her community felt that she was really uh, doing the wrong thing by going to yoga training. And she said, no, you don't understand. This is a philosophy. I am not converting to Hinduism. This is a philosophy that I want to bring to the synagogue to help everybody and they were like okay we'll see but they were really kind of skeptical as anybody would be you know i i had friends ask me you know like I, what does this mean you know what, what does it mean <laughs> you know it's uh it is one of the oldest self-help philosophies on the planet <laughs> that's a great way of putting it so um for for those who are going to read your book, whether they're going to read it with me in the book club or on their own after the book club has been recorded or just individually by themselves. Is there anything that you would suggest in the way that they approach it? Um, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. And I think that I've done the most service for people by, you know, the guidance is in the book and the guidance is basically to see how this works for you see where it can be applied in your life you know people when they see a 30-day program immediately your thoughts go to a diet or a <laughs> workout regimen or something that's supposed to be done a certain way right and these are concepts they're ethics you know they're ethical principles they're also principles of mindfulness of uh waking up to reality, you know, um, somebody told me yesterday on the subject of social media that a friend of hers had curated so carefully a pretty picture of her life. But mm. meanwhile, we find out that there was quite the different thing going on behind the scenes. And so, you know, there's this idea of take yourself away from that and have your personal experience. You know, what is your satya? What is your truth? You know, uh, one of the most important principles that I live by is to thine own self be true, meaning let me not engage in self-deception. Let me not fall prey to outer deception. What is my experience today and how do I engage in this world? What energy am I putting out? Am I getting on the phone and ranting about the state of the world while doing nothing about it? Or am I asking the other person, how are you doing today? You know, and, and seeing how I can be of service. You know, yoga is so much about service. And I think, um, you know, uh, that we, we get upset about things, you know, that are happening. And uh, upset, you know, is then followed by anger, misuse of anger, that kind of thing. What, when, I, when I post on social media, I'm like, what am I putting out here? Do I need to contribute to the negativity? Oh my goodness. My, 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 
my teachers at Integral Yoga were always like, be a light, be a light. You know, what are you putting out into the universe? Pause. The idea of the pause, the power of the pause, uh, we've lost and we can regain. But people are so quick to post things and say things, do things without thinking. That, that's something that meditation actually, I mean, meditation sort of in increases that gap. We hope. <laughs> yeah, right. In, in my personal experience, and um, the research bears this out too, that there's, you know, there's more of an opportunity for discernment because if you're more aware of your own thoughts, then there is the chance for the witness of your thoughts to say, hmm, is yeah, that, well, right. So the, the gap between the thought and the action, yes, but then also just the evaluation of the thought yes, a and, and the relationship between the thought and the subsequent feeling, right. Yes. That there is more of an opportunity to discern about every aspect of that process rather and than being reactive emotionally and in in terms of our actions in the world and that's not a heavy process you know that doesn't have to be a bummer that's not like the flax seed of the mind you know? <laughs> it doesn't taste bad to do this you know right, this right. is a process where it's truly um enlightening there's a lot of uh i feel a great spiritual lift from it I feel a great sense of optimism, of growth, of like, wow, this is wonderful. Because I think what people are really afraid of these days, especially, is a lack of control. The pandemic came. We had no right. control over that. Right. Most of life, we've come to find, if we stay in yoga philosophy for a while, oh, there's very little control over anything. My goodness. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's enlightening. <laughs> and not in a great way. But here we have a lovely sense of control that comes as a relief. It comes as a spirit of optimism of like, wow, yes, I can choose to sit down, watch my breathing for a few minutes, turn that into a beautiful meditation. I can practice the thought swap of Pratipaksha Bhavana and, and also, focus you on know, optimism. let go of the things that we can't control, right? Like, yes, and make peace with them. Make yes, peace with right. them. You know? Surrender. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I made peace with the tendonitis. You know, it was like, all right, <laughs> yeah. you're a thing. You're happening. I'm going to stop fighting you now. Stop overstretching you and yeah. work with you. And right. there, that brings us to what you began with, which is the mind there is no difference between the mind and the body you know i mean there is they are connected you cannot work with the body without working with the mind vice versa so right. let's bring them together work with them equally they can even be friends <laughs> I, I, mine are you know yeah. i have a little argument occasionally but i'm like hey you know what this is where we are today it's yeah. fine <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to add or share? We will certainly link to your site and where people can find all of your books, not just the one that we're reading in book club. Um, yeah. But is there anything else you'd like to tell us before we close for the day? Yeah, you know, um, be gentle with yourself uh, in this process. Uh, you know, see where you go with it. There is no predestined path uh it's this is you know you finding your yoga you you finding yoga as we all know is about union 
connection, body, mind, spirit, and universe, whatever, not to get woohoo about it, but it really is about connection. So find your own path to that connection. Let it be a process of, you know, if it's 30 days, if it's, you know, 30 years, like mine has been thus far. And um, yeah, and see where it takes you. I'm surprised at where it's taken me. Mm -hmm. I have, as I mentioned before, interestingly, I went to school, uh, I went to art school for cartooning, ended up becoming a writer. And now somehow I'm back in cartooning again. <laughs> and I'm doing this, this uh, graphic novel as a webcomic. And so people are kind of surprised when they go on my social media and see a bunch of drawings. They're like, where's the yoga? And I always <laughs> say to them, it's everywhere, you know, because yoga was what helped me find my truth and my path. And part of that was, you know, something I have some unresolved business from before. I really used to love doing that. And I got sidetracked in a wonderful way. I became a writer. It was a very successful magazine industry, successful author. But now it's time to go back and pick up where I left off. And I am, that is my satya. That's my truth. It's my joy. And yoga is in every bit of it. So see where it takes you. Well, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for writing this book that we're going to get to experience together. Thank you for being willing to join us. And thanks oh, for coming here to talk about it in the yoga room. Well, you know what? Thank you for all of your work, because as one of my beloved and respected teachers, you taught me so much about the spiritual path, the emotional path, about how to work with people, about how to be a person. <laughs> you know, there's such a a great deal that you and Nancy O'Brien taught us all, and I keep it with me. And in my own practice every day, I think to myself now, Stephanie said, you know, this. <laughs> oh, that's so very I thank touching. you for that. Thank you for being one thank of you. my teachers. Thank you so much for joining us in the yoga room. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking, following, and leaving a review. You can find more information and resources on our website at arthritis.yoga and on our social media channels. Join our newsletter to learn about our latest offerings and please share with anyone who might benefit. Until our next episode, we wish you peace and well-being. May your light shine so bright that all the world is better for your being in it. Thank you.